Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Good morning, Curious Humans. In this episode, I speak with my good friend, Malcolm Ocean. Malcolm is many, many things. But first and foremost, I consider him to not only be relentlessly curious, but genuinely prolific in sharing his practical philosophy, questions, ideas, mostly through the medium of his Twitter threads. So I predicted that the <laughs> the experience of listening to this conversation might be a little bit like feeling like you're trapped in a pinball machine, bouncing between unrelated topics. But in fact, what unfolded in a kind of beautiful way was, was a really satisfying dance around parallel and related threads that centered around our mutual interest of human attention and perception and how these theories have deep practical value in our daily life. Some of the topics we danced around included the, the value and the art of holding questions and sitting in that sense of uncertainty. His case for a what he calls a, a liveness-based productivity system and we discussed why you know why even consider setting goals in the first place. We talked about the, the pretty unknown ideas around perceptual control theory and how they've shifted his outlook on life and how these theories connect to the work of Ian McGilchrist, um, which we're, we're both big fans of, on the differences between our left and right brain hemispheres. And then we also talked about our respective domino memes as a way of attempting to articulate the different levels of impact that we're hoping to make in the world. And I really appreciated his framing of what he calls negative effort, which is a way of saying the, the creative work that we can't not do, and some ideas for how to potentially incentivize this on a wider scale. So I feel like I learned a huge amount just listening myself for a lot of this, and I really hope that you enjoy this this pretty nerdy but fascinating deep dive with the ever thoughtful, the kind and the deeply enthusiastic human, Mr. Malcolm Ocean. Welcome, Malcolm. Yeah, great to be here. <laughs> We've been kind of, uh, you know, aware of each other for a while and, you know, I've seen you at my workshops and stuff like that um, around on Twitter. Um, it's cool to cool to be talking face to face. Yeah, I, th I think it's been a couple of years of, of back and forth. So this this conversation is a, is a long time coming. Yeah. Um, how are you? How are you feeling right now? In three words. Hmm. Satisfied. Excited. Playful. Hmm. Nice. As I mentioned before we hit record, I've spent the last couple of days combing through your blog posts and Twitter threads, and I feel like there are just a ton of different directions we could go in over the next ninety minutes or so. Um, totally. so Let's guess, do all of them. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say that as a warning to you and, and maybe listeners that they might feel like they're being trapped in a, in a pinball machine. Um, but I also think this is going to be a ton of fun. Yeah. So, yeah, as a, as a starting point, let's begin with a question that I, I really can't not ask at this point. Um, and that is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something you were curious about? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think probably the most evocative story of this, when I was about five, I was playing around on the breakwater at one of the beaches that near, near where I grew up in Nova Scotia. And, and I, I jumped in some way that I hit my head on a, on a rock and, and, and it started bleeding quite profusely. And so, you know, my parents rushed me to the hospital and they were, um, they were anesthetizing me in order to put stitches in my forehead, which had cracked open. Um, and, and I was, I was asking the doctors all these questions about like, what, what was the anesthetic they were using and how did that work? And what, how many stitches were they going to use and all these sorts of questions. And the doctors were kind of like turning to each other and they were like, he seems to be, you know, weirdly, what a blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and my mom was just like, no, no, he's always like this. <laughs> You know, and uh, and that was definitely you know definitely a pattern. And I remember, hmm. it's like whenever as a kid I would be interacting with any sort of professional, it's like I would always want to know what the world was like for them. Mm. You know, it's yeah. like so I'm there. I'm at I'm at, the, I'm at the dentist, right? And I'm like, you know, I'm just like I'm trying to understand how their whole system works, right? <laughs> so yeah. um, yeah, that feels that feels like the best best story of me being exceptionally curious. <laughs> <laughs> they literally thought something had gone wrong. I mean, I had hit my head, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty ordinary for me. That's great. And I, I can definitely relate to aspects of that in my, in my childhood too. Um, and I guess part two to that question, did you have any, any favorite books or favorite stories growing up that come to mind? And, and I, as context for that, I, I really love this question because I have this theory that the, the narratives of the stories that really resonate when we're younger are sometimes in some way connected to our life's purpose or what we do later in life so curious mm. if anything arises for you there yeah um you know it's funny because like i read a lot as a kid but i was always somebody who who wanted to to read different stuff you know like some some people are very much you know they're they have favorites and they go back to those favorites over and over and over again you know they watched you know some movies you know, 10 times or 50 times or things like that, or, or similarly mm -hmm. with books. And I literally, you know, the number of books that I have read even twice all the way through is, I mean, the number of books I could name that I have for sure read twice, like uh, there's one I just reread recently called Making Sense of Behavior, The Meaning of Control. It's a very cool book about, about neuroscience and so on. You're definitely going to want to check it out. I think I probably, you know, one of my favorite novels as a kid was uh, this book called A Tale of Time City, which is this really trippy kind of sci-fi fantasy book where these little kids, well, I don't know little, but you know, the kids who kind of, li they live in this city that's somehow outside of time mm -hmm. and they have to do time travel into various eras in order to like fix some weird thing where the engine of time has sort of stopped it's mm. like slowing down and stopping like it's not kind of churning anymore but it's it's this really weird take on time travel right because everything is sort of predestined it's like you know they're going back into you know the 1910s or whatever at one point um and it's like there's no way to prevent world war one like world war one just like happens and yet there's still like and yet they still show up and they need to like play some key role so it, I don't know. I like, I think that was probably like an early experience of me being really into like, kind of like sort of mind bending type, type media, you know, and mm -hmm. then I've since, you know, I really have loved, um, you know, some of Christopher Nolan's films like Inception and Tenet and mm -hmm. stuff like mm -hmm. just really trippy, you know, time travel stuff. Mm. 
um, or just like other, you, you know, just um, media that really makes you go, wait, what? <laughs> um, I guess it's kind of, you know, mm. one thing I would say that has, has appealed to me, but, but it's funny. Cause you know, I was reading incessantly as a kid. I mean, not as much as my sister, but um, like I was reading a lot, but it was, I, I wouldn't say that I really had that many favorites. Um, oh. mm. Interesting. Um, the, yeah, the, the book on time reminds me of one of the few books that I've reread as well is a book called Einstein's dreams by Alan Lightman. And it's basically this beautiful, um, beautifully constructed book where he he kind of crafts, of, I think it's like 20 to 25 different um, micro stories that are just a few pages long where time has a different, um, time functions differently in each of these worlds. Whoa. And he kind of paints a picture of where like, like there's one, one image that really stands out is in this village where time, um, closer to the central statue goes incredibly slowly so there's this couple just about to lean into a kiss and they're kind of frozen in time and then the further out you go away from the center the faster time gets um and it's just beautifully like beautifully written and almost poetic um, that's so, so cool i feel that's like so you'd, cool. you'd really appreciate that book yeah you um, you might like um some by david eagleman mm, it's really really similar kind of yeah really similar like style yeah you like, you you read huge, some huge fan yeah 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 yeah, yeah it's great totally yeah okay cool um well i i remember i actually remember the first time that i came into contact with your writing and it was i think just over two and a half years ago and i found a guest post of yours on the on the ribbon farm blog which i'm definitely going to link to in the show notes and it was titled questions are not just for asking and speaking of things that I've, I've read more than once I think this is genuinely one of my all-time favorite blog posts on the internet and I've I've returned to it several times um, and I love the distinctions that you made around the the art of holding questions and, mm -hmm. and using questions to organize attention and, and especially and this is an idea I've, I've heard in multiple different ways but the idea of letting the questions ask us so mm -hmm. Given that you wrote this, I, I guess, probably four, four more years ago, um, I'm wondering, has anything shifted in what you wrote since that post and, and how the art of, of working with questions influences the work that you do now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great constellation of a question or a, <laughs> well, a constellation of several questions huh. or whatever. Um, Let's see. So I actually just linked somebody to that post last night. Um, hmm. I was uh, I was having a conversation with a group of people trying to kind of strategize about how to how to make a product to help people level up developmentally and so on. And and the strategy session, as far as I could tell, had a had a failure mode where nobody knew how to hold questions. Nobody knew how to sit with questions. Like somebody would hmm. put out a a question that they were kind of chewing on some really complex, you know, sort of almost like, um, you know, here's as far as I know, kind of an unsolved problem, like, an, you know, an open question globally, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they would say something, they would put out something of that nature, and then somebody else would just kind of jump in and try to answer it, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. as if they just already knew the answer. And, um, and one of one of the people even expressed this when I when I brought this up later and shared the the post they said something like yeah it's it's almost like I wasn't even asking the question I was actually expressing 
that I lacked the discernment to even assess a, a possible answer to that question, mm. which is, mm. which is really quite mm. a statement. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's, you know, I'm not asking a question. I'm actually saying, I don't even know how I would go about beginning to know if this question had been answered. Mm. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that's, that's just kind of one, one little um, aspect of it. Another is, I mean, in the weeks after I wrote and published that post, I was at some, you know, conferences and so on. And I would run into people, you know, sometimes new people I was meeting, sometimes old friends. And they would just ask me all sorts of random stuff. You know, they would, they would be like, you know, like, so what are you working on these days? And, you know, and there was this, there was this way in which if I, if I didn't pause, it was just so easy to just kind of Blah 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 blah. Like what whatever, whatever kind of sounded like the right thing to say in response to their question right. would just kind of tumble out of me, which was not necessarily, first of all, what I particularly felt like talking about, nor particularly what they were actually really interested in, because sometimes the questions were coming from, you know, something like, "What would be a good question to ask here?" In uh -huh. the context of not wanting to kind of be in some silence. Uh -huh. um yeah yeah so i mean that was another thing i noticed and i i've i think probably substantially refined my capacity to to sit with questions and to hold questions and 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 i do really feel like part of what i was doing last night when i was on the strategy call is i was sort of taking some notes on like okay what what makes for a really good conversation especially among not just two people but like you know a group of four to ten people like what makes for a really good conversation and which is a question worth worth sitting with and worth you know doing some deep thinking about like you know just what is even my my sense of an answer to that question hmm. um like, I think, I think that would be beneficial for, for everybody to do is just even like, you know, take, take some time and think about like, what do I think makes for a good conversation? Mm. And one of the things that I noticed that is just vital if you're talking about anything remotely complex or remotely on the edge of what, you, what people know and understand is you need to have that ability to sit with questions and, and let them kind of simmer, let them get you know, played with and explored and refined and, mm. um, you know, connected to other things without uh, simply trying to answer them. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah, so insofar as, you know, one of the main things that I'm working on is like creating um, really high quality conversations. Um, it's, you know, it's very, it's very central to that. And, and, and a really high quality conversation is, um, is in some sense, really high quality thinking on a collective level and and likewise you know really high quality thinking internally is is kind of like a really good internal conversation mm. um yeah oh one mm. one other little piece one other one other take on this my, my friend michael smith has this great thing he he says where suppose that you ask yourself like what did i have for breakfast today who who answers the question like, where does the answer come from and how do you know the answer is right and there, there's some there's some part of you that you kind of pose this question and then you wait for something to bubble up and then some part of you knows that the answer is right hmm. 
you know, when I when I when I posed that question to myself just now, I initially thought of you know yogurt and granola, and then I was like, no, actually, yogurt and granola was yesterday. Today, I just had a bunch of chocolate milk for breakfast, and mm. and it's but and somehow I know this, right? But like, how, how do I know that that that's that that's the answer? And there's this, you know, similarly, if you're trying to, you know, this my friend's a mathematician, and he would sometimes, you know, say when you when you try to make a proof, you know, or uh, of some sort of math statement, like you write it out and then you kind of just, you're so, you're sort of waiting, you're almost praying for an answer. Mm. And I feel like that's a little bit like sitting with a question. You know, it's not very interesting when it comes to the question of like, what did I eat for breakfast? But um, yesterday I was sitting with this question that was something like, there's no way to put it into words properly, but I, I was I was sitting with my guitar and I had this sense of like wanting to write a song that was something about like the edge and I was like oh what is even this edge thing that I mean and and I was just feeling into it and I was I was doing this little um kind of like ascending chromatic thing on the on the guitar that was like uh you know it was like the edge the edge and it was really uncomfortable I was just going up the guitar like that and just sitting with it and then suddenly this this phrase kind of popped into my mind that was like who gets you closer to the edge actually no that wasn't it it was who gets you right up to the edge and it and it expressed like five thoughts in one phrase and i was like that's it that's it i found the thing i was looking for yeah. but it required sitting with the the discomfort of mm. there's something here there's some you know and and that's you know in a sort of non-verbal way or you know in a non-conversational or non-declarative way the same kind of motion of sitting with that question yeah so it's it's kind of like you know one way to put it is either you have clarity about what it makes sense to do or you have clarity of how to go about getting clarity of what it makes sense to do, mm. or you don't know. And if you don't know, then you kind of, kind of just got to sit with it. And this is an insight that I had in some ways years ago, but just recently got underscored to me by another friend of mine um, who, who basically considers that the core of the Dharma. Um, yeah. Mm, wow, there is um, there are a lot of thoughts swimming around in my head right now. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Where where do I begin? Um, so firstly, I think the the piece that you mentioned around the the guy in, in the group yesterday who was kind of unable to just sit with the question. Um, it, it reminds me of there's a, a concept I, I believe was coined by John Keats a, a fair fair while ago, and he has this term called negative capability. And in, in, in his mind, it's this, this capacity to sit with uncertainty that he equated was almost essential for, for greatness and certainly for, for good thinking. And I, I think it's interesting how there is this like, um, this real discomfort that we feel with, with any type of uncertainty. And I suppose that putting a question out there, it, it's almost like you're the, the, the capacity that you have to sit with that question is, I think, in some ways correlated to the degree to which you can sit with uncertainty probably in other areas of your life too um and i think this is something that w one of the reasons i've really enjoyed having a podcast has been both that it's it's helped me i think to both 
sit with questions and to be okay with not having an, an easy answer. Um, and, and also to to your to another point that you made, just the the art of inquiring what makes for great conversations is also really interesting and something that I've been learning and I constantly have to kind of check myself on is the difference between asking a question that uh, I think will make me sound intelligent <laughs> versus like asking a question that I'm genuinely curious about and that there's a sense of like aliveness and spark behind and that's something that I'm like constantly just learning and reflecting on in my own journey as a podcast host so I, I think mm -hmm. that's um, something as well to just that, that I've been trying to keep in mind um, yeah yeah I, and I felt like part of part of what inspired me to kind of go deep and pull out all these different things in response to the question that you asked about the um the ribbon farm guest post was that you were like you know this has been such a powerful piece for me and so it's like I really felt plugged into why you wanted to know mm -hmm. more about it you know it wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't just a throwaway question if you see what I mean like mm -hmm. yeah totally totally yeah um and the the other the other piece that maybe we'll come back to later in the conversation but I, I like this idea of like who's asking the question and I suppose that gets to this idea of like if, if if we take an internal family system lens there are multiple people or characters that we have inside of us and so sitting with a question in, in some ways I guess is like a way to um, allow those different aspects which might not be front and center in our consciousness to to kind of weigh in in in, in some way and so that the the answer that mm. we give is is more of a an amalgamation or, or a uh, a, a reflection on these multiple perspectives as opposed to the first perspective which surfaces which might not be as true as if we'd taken multiple perspectives and almost taken an inventory of the different internal characters that we have totally totally the um the negative capability thing reminded me of another another connection i could make with that questions post and the the value of sitting with with questions mm, um, please which, which also relates to what you just said about, you know, parts and so on, which is, so I've been, I've been studying in a very pragmatic way, the process of people trying to give each other feedback about blind spots. And this is a very challenging thing to do because the very nature of blind spots when it comes to, you know, behaviors and social dynamics and so forth, um, the very nature of blind spots is that, is that you can't see them. And so, and blind spots kind of exist within somebody's frame, like somebody's viewpoint, their paradigm, their way of seeing and relating to the world. And there's this paradox, which is that if I try to give you feedback about your blind spot, then I've got to somehow, in order to communicate with you at all, like in general, in order to communicate with somebody, you need to kind of match their frame. You need to put mm -hmm. words you need to put what you're trying to say into language that they can understand that'll make sense to them mm -hmm. but if i were to match your frame inherently your blind spot is gone mm. it, at the point when i've matched your frame there's your frame doesn't include your blind spot by definition mm -hmm. and so there's this paradox where either i'm going to say something nonsensical because I'm not going to be able to like match your frame enough, or I'm going to say something nonsensical because I'm going to have matched your frame, at which point it's impossible to talk about the very problem that I'm trying to talk about. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and if you notice yourself in a conversation with somebody and you're trying to point something out to them and you suddenly feel like sort of weirdly stupid, or even, <laughs> I think this is a great, a great context to use the word dumb um, because of the double meaning of, you know, dumb as right. unable to talk, right? Um, that's a good sign that what's going on is that you're trying to point at something that is sort of in their blind spot. Mm. And then what's happening is that you can't, you can't speak because you're encountering this paradox where there's sort of no direct way to point at the very thing you want to point at in a way that'll make sense to this other person. Where you might not be dumbstruck if you were talking to your friend and you're like, oh man, you know, uh, like Jackie has this thing, you know, you, you know, you know, friend. And the friend's like, yeah, yeah, totally. And it's like, you can totally talk with your friend about it. But the moment you go to try to talk to Jackie, <laughs> you're dumbstruck. So uh, this, this is all kind of a, a preface to the, the connection I wanted to make, which is that the most useful response, I think, to receiving blind spot feedback of any kind, um, the, the sanest response is to say something like, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I'm sure you're talking about something. And it sounds like it's creating some sort of problem for you. I would like to not be creating that problem for you. And I don't know what, I don't understand what it is that I'm doing that's creating that problem. And until I do understand why, what it is that I'm doing and why I'm doing it, um, I'm probably going to keep doing it. Hmm. And uh, hopefully we can, we can find some way to ease the pressure off in the meantime, you know, because I don't, as I said, I don't want to be creating this problem for you. So maybe we need a bit more space in our relationship, or maybe there's, you know, some stopgap solution that we can do that will sort of minimize the problemness of, of what's going on. Um, but like what you're doing there is sort of stepping into a place that's sort of outside of any frame of what anybody's doing or the meaning of what anybody's doing and just kind of acknowledging, okay, there's something here you're trying to point at. There's some sort of thing, but I can't change it until I know what it is. Mm. And so I'm not going to pretend, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'll do it differently. Now. What do you, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> um, and, um, so there's something really powerful to that, but it's also, it's really hard to say that in a lot of contexts because people sort of have this idea that like, if you cared, you would change. Mm, sure. And it's like, maybe, but that requires a bunch of other things to be in place. Like you can't change what you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in, in some sense, nearly always the, the bottleneck is actually understanding fully the whole situation of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and any kind of promise to change is kind of meaningless because if it if you actually knew what it would take in order to change and why that was important, you would just already do it. There would be no need to promise it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this is this is really really interesting. And um, what comes to mind for me is is also maybe what the nature of the blind spot is, and if it's more of a kind of cognitive bias versus something like. Um, <clears throat> something on the emotional spectrum that someone might not be familiar with feeling so to give an example there's um a guy called robert augustus masters who i've been i've been really diving into his work and he talked about how for a long period of time in his 30s and 40s 
compassion was really in his shadow and it really mm-hmm. took him to like going through a kind of dark night of the soul and having a like a real breakdown um to then to kind of feel his own pain and <clears throat> from there realizing how he'd lacked compassion for most of his life and that this was like a new feeling that came on li- came online on the other side of this really intense experience and I, I guess that would be similar to kind of what you're talking about if, if someone says you know you're you're lacking compassion you're not being compassionate well someone might intellectually think I would like to be compassionate but it might just not be available to them until they've been through some kind of experience that really brings it online in a, in a deeper way totally totally and it's it's like and how are you going to even know what they mean when they say compassion if you're lacking it? Right, right. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a great example of a blind spot. It's like, because it, it's, it's not like you just, you know, aren't being compassionate, even though you sort of could be, but it's like you, you lack the affordance or the access to that, mm. that relationship. Um, yeah. Mm, amazing. Okay, I'm going to um, I'm going to hit the the pinball machine button right now. Great. Beautiful. <laughs> and, and, I'm sure and, it'll all end up re- interrelating. Yeah, I, I well. think it's gonna I think it's gonna yeah. dovetail beautifully into some of the later stuff. But um, yeah, I'd love to uh, briefly. Well, I, I I guess first of all, um, actually credit you with I think helping me to restore a bit more of a healthy relationship to the notion of of productivity and systems. And I and wow. in, in my um. Yeah, I, I, I kind of went through this phase where I rejected a lot of what to me felt like this very kind of superficial productivity porn that was out there. And mm-hmm. I think that through a combination of your goal crafting workshops and some of your writing, I think a healthier balance is beginning to kind of be restored. So with, um, yeah, I, I suppose as a jumping off point, could you maybe give listeners some context as to what Complice is? Um, and, and, and maybe this is a silly question, but why, why do you think it's important to focus and think about productivity? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd be curious, you know, to hear a little bit more from you about kind of what was the transformation that, mm. that, that you've, you've begun in, in relating to some of, some of my ideas about, around this. I think that might bring it even mm. more alive. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, let's see. I think one of the big pieces was your distinction between the the like aliveness based system versus the exhaustiveness based system, mm-hmm. and and I think also um, having a very clear connection to the spark and and the the underlying intention and the desire behind these things that we say we want to do and kind of. I'm really getting clear on what the deeper motivation is and connecting to that before just going into like a, a stream of, of tasks that might feel good and we might get dopamine hits from kind of ticking off, but really restoring that healthy connection to desire. And, and I think it's probably been a larger part of my journey in a way to kind of restore a, a healthier connection with, with desire and, and like actually um having strong intentions and putting them out into the world um and being okay with that Mm, Uh, mm -hmm. yeah so that's a bit of context would you say before that like like it felt not safe to have strong intentions because they would get stale or something like that 
Mm. No, I, I think what it was was um, partly coming from the startup world where mm -hmm. there were a lot of um, a lot of people who kind of set very ambitious goals and, you know, were very driven to have a big impact on the world and, and things like that. And just seeing how so much of the time this was coming from a place of ego and, and this was actually leading to more suffering in their own lives than actually um, kind of either fulfilling them and, and quite often the good intentions that they had had kind of negative second and third order consequences because it was often coming from a place of wounding and mm. the desires they thought they they wanted weren't actually their desires but they were more just projections from um, things they maybe inherited from their parents or, or culture um, and so I think I just became very suspicious of um, a lot of the ambition out there and therefore of my own ambition as well right yeah i mean and that's there definitely can be a dark dark side or a shadow side to you know having ambitious goals one of the things that people sometimes encounter when they get into accomplice is you know they set a they set a work goal and they set a you know side hustle goal and they set a fitness goal and they set a you know um uh you know saving money goal or whatever and then they find that you know a couple months have gone by and they haven't seen any of their friends and they're like wait <laughs> shit uh i think there's something else i care about here and um you know and i've been i've been actually kind of on the fence over the last year or two uh maybe on the fence is not quite the right word but i maybe i would say i've been holding the question of whether goal is even quite the right framing for mm -hmm. for these because you know there's a sense in which it's it, it's the right word for the thing um but there's another sense in which you know it has a lot of connotations and you know, people think of smart goals, or you need to have a specific target or whatever. Um, and it can definitely kind of get people over focused on some of the more tangible things or the more um, accomplishment oriented things, you know, yeah. or things that feel kind of like, you know, winning a prize or, um, sure. you know, getting rich, you know, or something like that. Sure. Um, and so, you know, there is a thing where, yeah, I, you know, I've, and, and so I've thought about like, what if I call them just like wise? Um, any, anyway, um, I guess for, for, you know, to take a step back and just kind of talk about complex more generally um, and kind of related to your question, I forget exactly what your question was, it was something you, you're just like, tell can you tell people about complex? I think is what you said. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Um, so, so yeah, it's like um, this distinction between the kind of, you know, aliveness orientation and the, um, uh, you know, exhaustiveness orientation is kind of related to like a lot of, a lot of productivity systems sort of take for granted that there's a bunch of stuff that you need to do and you need to somehow find a way to get yourself to do the stuff. Mm. And with Complice, it's like, I started from a very different place in, you know, from the beginning which was uh, this goal setting workbook that I was using. And the difference is, you know, it's kind of old wisdom, you know, it goes back to, you know, Stephen Covey's seven habits or whatever of begin with the end in mind and, and whatever else. But it's basically like, what are you actually aiming for? Like, what does the world look like that you want to see, that you want to bring into being? Hmm. And then, keeping that world in mind where are you right now and what does it make sense to do in the context of that desire that you have to bring that world into mind 
And then in the context of that, it's like, sure, you know, suppose that you're planning some event, there might be a hundred little fiddly tasks that somebody's got to take care of. And you sure want them listed somewhere so you don't lose track of them. Sure. But it's like, you don't, if you're, if you're beginning with the end in mind, though, it's like, you're not just checking those tasks off the list, you're, you're staying in touch with, I want this result. I want this experience of this event that's going to, you know, bring so many people together and blow their minds or wh whatever the event is supposed to do. Mm. And so, you know, you're not just getting the kind of local satisfaction of like, I, I, I checked a box off, you know, this is one fewer thing weighing me down on my list of shit that I got to do. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're like, oh, this is one step closer to this, this world that I really want to live in. And so that was kind of the premise with Compless from the beginning. And, you know, when I first built it, I thought I would add a bunch of planning steps into it, you know, mm -hmm. eight years ago when I was first getting started. But as the years have gone on, I found there's actually something really beautiful about the part where you kind of can't make plans because mm -hmm. what that means is the plans can't go stale. There's no mm -hmm. way to like bog yourself down too much with what your past self thought you had to do instead it's just like no that 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 indeed was what you thought you had to do but like now it's a new day you still care about what you care about it's probably pretty similar to what you cared about yesterday but like maybe it's shifted slightly or your best idea for how to approach it has shifted slightly and yeah, so this yeah. i mean this also in some ways in some ways relates to the sitting with a question thing T totally totally yeah, yeah. And, and it also connects with um, the book that I mentioned, um, Making Sense of Behavior, The Meaning of Control by William yep. T. Powers. Yep. Um, it's a, the book is about perceptual control theory, um, which is a systems thinking based or cybernetics based control systems way of modeling uh, the brain and the, the body, like the, the sort of, you know, an organism that is able to organize its world in ways to suit it. Essentially, it points at how there's, a pretty basic neurological basis for seeing all behavior as being goal-driven mm -hmm. and specifically like goal-driven in the sense of closing a gap between what you want and what is. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, this applies to really low level behavior. Like, you know, when you're driving down the highway in your car and, you know, you notice like, Oh, I'm a little bit too close to the, you know, the center line. I'm just going to, turn a little bit and, you know, get back in my lane or, you know, you're a little too close to the curb. So, you, you know, the, whatever the, you know, the side. And so, you, you know, turn and go back a bit closer in the middle, like that's, you know, correcting this, this little error of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm off to the side. I should be more in the middle, mm -hmm. but the whole act of driving somewhere in the first place is correcting the error of I'm at home and I want to be at the gym, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or wherever it is that you're going. And so it's like, there's a sense in which goals as understood as on the, on the sort of raw, raw level of like, here's where I am. Here's where I want to be mm. are like a fundamental neurological phenomenon that we are exhibiting like millions of every second. Like, you know, right mm. now, as I'm talking to you, um, I'm, I have this impression of like what, what I would need to say in order to, generate uh, a sense in you of understanding what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And then that trickles down through other layers into what are the words going to be that are going to formulate the best example. And right. often, you know, if I'm talking with somebody 
face-to-face -face or on a video chat, I might pick up a physical object and use the way I'm holding it and moving it around as an example. And we're on audio right now, so I, I can't I can't do that. And so I'm I'm using my own speech as an example, which is uh, you know a little a little subtler, but it it works okay. You know. Yep. Yep. Um, and and the the free form improvisation of that, you know, it's like I can reach for the old pathway, but oh, it's not there because I, you know, we don't have a line of sight right now, so I have to have to find some other strategy. Is is like you know when you're driving with your car and you encounter a detour and you've got to go out of the way, or when you're uh -huh. working on some business goal and you encounter oh, nope, the thing I got to do today is I got to deal with the sight it being down. Like that's right, right, right. that's not what I plan to do today, but you know, I this goal matters to me, and so that's that's what today is because yeah, I, I can't yeah. just leave the site down. You know, all of these detours are still you know they're obstacles on the way to what we want, and sometimes you encounter an obstacle that's big enough that you're like, you know what, I'm actually going to give up on this goal, right? Um, for whatever reason. But if but if you encounter an obstacle and you you don't decide to give up, but you also don't know how to overcome the obstacle, then you've got yourself in a bit of a pickle. Right, like you've got yourself in some sort of conflict where you can neither you can neither proceed nor retreat, and you've got to somehow deal with that. And kind of by definition, you don't know how to solve it, or you just already would have. Um, which um, which is kind of that that creative space of being with the uncertainty, being with the unknown. Mm. Mm. Yeah, this this is really interesting, and um, yeah, I I love the connection between goal setting and, and PCT. And what's what's kind of arising in me right now is, is maybe the connection between, let me see if I can articulate this. When, when I think about, and I think part of my aversion to setting goals that I, I didn't mention, but it also stems from um, almost the, the arrogance that I think I know what it is that I want. And, and that usually when when I or anyone is setting a goal I'm really just like I'm like I want to feel a certain way and I'm making a guess that if I go in this direction it will lead to allowing me to feel this way like that's I think often what's happening and I think what is so <clears throat> what has been really valuable for me has been consistently reorienting to the intention and the spark of aliveness behind that that is like animating the goal and, and the direction I want to go in and then often the specific goal or the guess that I've I've had shifts depending on like every time I I take a step or three steps forward it's like the view of the horizon changes and I kind of reorient slightly and so I, I think it's that process of, of like checking in with myself and being like is this still the right direction or or, or can I kind of update the, the the guess of the goal that I think I that I that a, a previous version of myself maybe six months ago thought that's what I wanted but because of new information I now want to go in a slightly different direction totally totally and sometimes people have a kind of attitude of of like well you don't want to go in the wrong direction you know so you should be really clear what your goal is before you set out mm -hmm. but as you say in my experience most of the time, this isn't, this isn't always the time, but I, I'll, this isn't always the case, but most of the time, in order to find out where you're trying to go, you got to hit the trail. Like mm -hmm, totally. you, you got to get out on the path and start yep. walking it and realize, wait, wait, this is a dead end or, Absolutely you, know, agree. Yep. Uh, you know, oh, wait, no, I actually, I want to go over there. That looks really cool. Or, you know, oh man, my princess is actually in another castle, right? Like mm -hmm. 
you know, but you've got to <laughs> go to the first castle in order to find that out. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so I, I've read some of the, some of the book that you, that you shared on perceptual control theory and oh, cool. my sense of what I've read so far is that it's, it's kind of, as you shared, it's built on this idea that we as humans are reacting not to the real world, but rather to our perceptions of it. And that these perceptions are in fact also based on our prior experiences, which might include trauma, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the theory makes intuitive sense to me. Um, and I think I've also been exploring this through the lens of the nervous system as well. Totally. So I, I guess there's kind of two questions here. Um, the first one is, how might you describe kind of PCT for a curious listener? And second, this was a question from uh, Michael, our, our mutual friend, uh, and he was wondering why PCT has been so transformational for you and, and what belief shift it's created in your life. Hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, to kind of, to describe PCT in brief, what I would say is the, the first thing to understand is the concept of a control system. And the simplest example of a control system that most people are familiar with is a thermostat. You know, that could be either the thermostat in your oven or the thermostat on, on your wall, you know, that heats your house. And what the thermostat does is it compares two things, a perception, which is a, some, some sensor measurement of the temperature of the room or the oven, and the other thing that it compares, and then it compares that with a reference level, which is the, what the temperature is supposed to be. You know, so if you've got your thermostat hooked up to a furnace, then, you know, if the temperature is below what it's supposed to be, then it activates a circuit that runs the furnace and heats the house. Of course, it can't heat the house instantly, but it'll run the furnace until the house warms up and then it'll shut the furnace off. And this is really cool, right? Like you don't have to, you know, manually, you know, stoke the furnace with exactly as much fire as you want to get your house to be the temperature that you want it. You just set it to a particular temperature and this incredibly simple circuit takes care of the rest. So, so that's a control system. And the premise of PCT is that the entirety of, or, or the vast majority of behavior exhibited by people and and also animals is essentially also control systems, but it's a network of control systems that set each other's reference levels from, you know, very high level concepts down to the very basics of the actuation of the individual motor neurons that move your hand or your mouth to, you know, form a gesture or a a sound. Mm. And you don't have to focus on all of the lower level details because your system is already well organized such that once you set the reference level, you know, I want to say the word blue, you know, I, I just think the word blue and my system knows exactly how to make that sound come out. But I don't have perfect pitch, for instance, so I can't simply think I want to sing a middle C and just sing it. I'm, I might be able to get middle C, you know, just because I really know that one, but like, <laughs> I think probably um, somebody with perfect pitch can can tell me later if that was right. But somebody with perfect pitch would have a reference level for that exact value, and they could just make it come out of their mouth. Um, 
but you can also do a relative reference level. So, you know, um, wh whatever the pitch was that I previously sang, like I could sing, you know, an octave higher than it, right? Like that's, you know, whatever that pitch was, I've just now set a new reference level that's like the same pitch, but an octave higher. And I can, you know, perform that transformation. So um, I don't know what's going on under the hood with that, but somehow I learned, you know, how to do that. So um, the reference level can be thought of as a goal. Mm, okay. And then the perceptual level or the, I forget what the term is, but you know, the perceived value of this thing is your current situation. Mm -hmm. And so all you have to do in some sense to, um, to achieve some goal is to have the goal and perceive the current situation. And then if you in fact have the goal and you perceive the current situation, you will do whatever you need to, to achieve that goal. Unless you have a conflict. You can imagine a house that has a separate furnace and air conditioning unit, right? They, they each have their own thermostats. They're, you know, rather than some central, you know, smart mm -hmm. house, whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. And so suppose that you set the, the air conditioning to, you know, 19 degrees Celsius. And you set the, the furnace to 23 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. What happens? What happens if you do that? Obviously, there would be, uh, they'd both be trying to uh, cool or heat the house respectively uh -huh. and, and never getting to the ideal temperature. Right. So you have, a, you, have a few, you have a few effects from this. Both of them are running full tilt, which is expending a tremendous amount of energy. Mm -hmm. Both of them are not satisfied. They're in a perpetual state of error because, you know, mm -hmm. say it stabilizes somewhere around 21 degrees, right? You know, halfway between. They're in a perpetual state of error. And so they, which is why they're running full tilt, right? Because when they're in a state of error, they run. Um, and so, you know, neither of them are satisfied. Both of them are, are running full tilt and wasting a lot of energy. And it is literally waste because it's, you know, it's canceling each other out. And moreover, you know, suppose that it stabilizes at 21 degrees. And then say that you open the door and you let in a draft and it cools down to, you know, 20 degrees or 19 degrees or something. Mm. A kind of, or you say, say it cools down to 20. Then what happens? Um, then the heater will probably go back into overdrive and there'll be a huge kind of uh, like larger oscillations. So you can get to oscillations, but before you get there, there's something else interesting that happens, which is nothing. Mm. If you actually had the thermostat and the, or if you actually had both thermostats, you know, the furnace and the AC set to 21, then if you open the door and let in a draft, the, the furnace would kick in and would bring it back up to 21. But if you've got the furnace set to 23 and the AC set to 19, then if a draft takes the temperature down to 20, they can't do anything. They're already both running full tilt. So mm. they're actually powerless to mm. even maintain it at this uneasy compromise. Sure, sure. Now, of course, not all systems work like this. Some of them will start, you know, exerting more when it gets further away rather than just like all or nothing. But, but you know, some systems are all or nothing like this. So then you have the question of what happens if you, you know, 
you leave the door open a long time and the temperature drops all the way down to nine, or, uh, 18, say. And then, as you said, the, well, the first thing that happens is not that the furnace goes into overdrive. The first thing that happens is the AC turns off because the AC is now satisfied. It's like, all right, we got the temperature down below 19. Great. Right. I mean, it, right. didn't really, it didn't really do that, the draft did, but um, <laughs> we got the temperature down below 19. Great. So the, the AC turns off. The furnace is still running full tilt, which means that sooner or later, the temperature is going to go back up. And if it takes long enough for the AC sensor to notice that the temperature has gone back up, then the furnace might actually succeed in getting the temperature up above 23, at which point the furnace shuts off. And then the AC turns back on, and that's when you get those big oscillations and fluctuations. Sure. So essentially, this same phenomenon occurs in people's motivation systems. Hmm. Somebody sets a, a goal to... Um, I'll actually, I'll use a case study from, uh, from Robert Keegan's uh, immunity to change work. Mm -hmm. um, he was working with a bunch of people who were getting diagnosed with some, you know, they'd had heart attacks or something like that. And they were, they were given, you know, some sort of pill that they had to take to whatever you, whatever you do when you get a heart attack, some sort of pill mm -hmm. that would sort out their blood pressure or whatever. And, um, and the doctors were basically saying, you know, if you, um, you know, if you don't take this pill, you know, every day, kind of, you know, you're probably, you know, not going to live very long. It was kind of, you know, the thing. And so you might think that people were pretty motivated to take these pills, and they were, you know, and if you ask them, you know, what are the odds that you think you'll still be taking this pill every day in six months, they would say, you know, are you kidding me? Of course, I'm going to take this pill. The doctor just said, I'm going to die if I don't take the pill. Mm. But something like a, a se one seventh of them actually were still taking the pills in six months. And so when they started trying to find out what was going on there, they, they, try, they, they sought out some competing commitment, is, is Robert Keegan's word for it. They had a commitment to taking the pills, but they also had some other commitment, which was fighting, like the air conditioning unit, against taking the pills. And in order to find it, they used a technique which is pretty similar to the techniques used by the coherence therapy folks and, and other, other um, modalities which is basically trying to inquire about what would be bad about taking the pills. And often when you, when you try to ask somebody this, they'll first respond, they, they, like, they won't even hear you and they'll respond with, you know, what's actually good about taking the pills. And you're like, oh, that's, I, I, you're like, I hear that, yeah, you know, it, it'd be good to take the pills and, you know, have better health. But I really want to know, you know, what would be bad if you took these pills? What, what kind of problem would that create for you? And, and Keegan cites this one particular example of this guy who suddenly explodes and says, if I have to take that pill every day, I'll be an old man like my dad. Mm. And it's like, all right, now we're mm. getting somewhere. Now we're understanding, you know, what the, what the conflict is. And really importantly, there's no such thing as don't want. It's not that the person doesn't want. They do want. They just also want not. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I'm with you. And sometimes it's, it's enough to just bring this thing to light. You know, the person realizes, well, shit, I am getting old, I guess, actually. That's, I don't like that, but shit. All right. You know, 
and I don't know how it went in this particular case. Like, I don't know if they had to sort of work with that emotional schema more um, or, or whatnot, but, um, but yeah, so the, the, the point there is that, you know, internal conflict shows up between two things that you want, but often what happens is that um, people are identified with one aspect of what they want and they call that what they want. And then they call the other thing, you know, my resistance or my alcoholism or, uh, you know, my inner demons or my shadow or my what, it's you, it's you. It's also you, it's just as much you as the parts that you're identified with. And it's really uncomfortable to acknowledge that because, you know, people like the idea that they're in control of their own behavior, which mm -hmm. brings us back to the whole accomplice tasks thing, um, where it's like trying to get yourself to perform tasks is trying to control your own behavior. And the brilliant insight of perceptual control theory is that one does not control one's own behavior, pretty much. What is controlled is the perceptions. It's the it's the experience of some some reference level that gets that gets changed and your actual behavior does whatever it needs to do to bring that reference level into being as long as that doesn't conflict with some other uh, reference level that you have like the example with the pills I'm going to kind of pause there that that feels like one of the better intros to PCT that I've given so that's kind of satisfying to have that on record yeah <laughs> yeah that was really good there's also a Balinese festival just started outside so apologies if there's some uh, some background there's no background noise at all it's great. background music okay perfect um so yeah this is this is really interesting and what came up for me when you mentioned the the metaphor of the of the thermostat is is actually that's very much how our pituitary gland um, regulates our endocrine system in our bodies and often there is a um a conflict between <clears throat> what we're kind of perceiving in the the current external world versus some kind of implicit memory that mm -hmm, may also mm -hmm. be surfacing and a lot of the i think a lot of the challenges that we face as humans are that our our endocrine system is simultaneously responding to what might be right in front of us but but more so responding to the implicit memories that have been stored either as kind of incomplete reflexes or as, as traumatic experiences and it seems to me that pct is almost taking like a a very interesting and uh, perspective on this phenomenon. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I think PCT is not a not a not a complete or adequate model for what to do about these internal conflicts because it doesn't actually. I mean, they have some therapy techniques like method of levels and so on, but mm. it doesn't. They don't have the same deep insights about how things can get kind of locked into the emotional brain via like um, memory consolidation and so on that the mm -hmm. coherence therapy folks really have thoroughly understood. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's like, it's almost just a more abstract layer that points at like how, how fighting yourself, you just, you can't win. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're any, any kind of fight with yourself is like the thermostat and the, or is like the furnace and the AC it's intrinsically wasteful. Like there is no, um, it, well, it, it's it's not to say it can't produce something beautiful, to be clear, right? Like, you know, mm. sitting with that tension, 
yeah. can produce yeah. something beautiful. But simply enacting this oscillation pattern, right? You know, mm. you know, for three days I go to the gym every day. Then for four <laughs> days I sit on the couch because fuck that guy who said I had to go to the gym every day. He just doesn't get to tell me what to do. And then I feel right, awful about right. myself. So I go to the gym. You know, it's like that's yeah, yeah. I mean when it comes to something like, you know, productivity or whatever, you can actually sometimes find that if if you have an a if you have a rebelliousness towards working, but you don't actually have a fear of success, uh-huh. um, then you can actually create a you know a great business or something on three days of working really hard and four days of rebelling or whatever um (laughs) right like because you know whatever customers you get on those three days you're working really hard you you know you still you still have those customers or whatever right like it's it's possible to achieve something even while in this oscillation um as long as you're not actually conflicted about whether or not you succeed um Yeah, yeah 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 and and i do think sometimes people are actually conflicted about succeeding like they they have some sense of like oh i want to keep a small profile so that people don't attack me or something oh, i want to absolutely yeah, i want to I not be more common. successful than my friends because if i if i do then i won't have any friends yeah um yeah. and some of these things can even be accurate like that you know they're it's it, you know people might deny them because they're the they're more identified with the part that really wants to whatever but um yeah yeah it's it's interesting that's um i'm not sure if this is a this might be a dead end, but it, it feels like to me there are almost two potential outcomes where where there's this uh, where there are the, the kind of two conflicting internal narratives, and one might be um, David White talks about how his interpretation of, of the Buddhist middle path is not just like taking the average of, of two paths, but more sitting with the uncomfortable tension of of a kind of in, of an inner conflict until a third way is revealed but it requires mm. that kind of um yeah beautiful. deep presence with the with the nature of the conflict for that kind of third path to appear but then I, I think there's also maybe another um equally true route which is if you and i've done this myself a few times if you kind of inquire as to what each part is, is maybe seeking in that moment then ultimately even though they're they're pointing in different directions they they often kind of want the same thing and and, and so maybe yeah, kind you of can kind of find a win-win exactly yeah 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 exactly i i hope you have a link to the david white uh piece on this whatever it is um because i i would love to read it and maybe you can put it in the notes as well yeah i, I do it was actually part of his um his recent sunday sermon series but i can link to the recordings um, oh cool yeah, yeah it was it was really really good um Okay, this, this is super interesting. And, and I think that um, something we've both been obsessed with uh, for a while is, is really the subject of attention and perception. Um, mm-hmm. And one of, your, one of your threads that I, I really love on Twitter basically made a pitch for why Ian, McG- Ian McGilchrist's work on divided brain is so important. And I, I love the metaphor that you used of, uh, I think it was like imagining two hikers together with the left hemisphere is the one staring at the map and the right hemisphere is the one looking at the world yeah um, yeah which which i i think is fantastic and so maybe for for listeners could you add a little bit more color to this summary and and also a similar question of of how and or why have you found this model so useful and valuable in your life yeah well maybe i'll start a little bit almost with the um 
with the the value part and i'll i'll tie in why pct has been so valuable for me too kind of an mm, answer perfect. to to yeah, michael's yeah. question um which is that um i've spent the you know the better part of well the better part of the better part of a decade you know i've spent a, a lot of my time over the last eight or nine years exploring questions around how can people relate to each other in ways that are really, really effective. And when I say really effective, you know, I don't just mean like getting the basic stuff out of the way, but it's like, as far as I can tell, the, the possibility space of human collaboration is is on the level of like, we could be like groups of people could be thinking together at a quality where the quality of the thinking itself would be like, would be so deep and wise and powerful that you could say that like the maturity, you know, intellectually and spiritually and everything else of this group thinking together would be would similarly outclass any individual person in the same way that like, you know, an adult attempting to solve the problem outclasses any toddler. And so with that as a kind of an aim, as a, as a possibility, you know, and that's part of, part of what's in, you know, that's that's what my reference level looks like when I'm talking about what is what is a really good conversation, you know. Um, with that as an aim, these two works um, first the perceptual controls theory stuff in 2017, and then in uh, 2019 reading Ian McGilchrist, they highlighted some really important fundamentals about how that necessarily needs to work given what. The brain is shaped like and there's a way in which the facts you know these models are partially about the brain but they're also partially about the nature of the universe um and the nature of self-organizing systems much more generally i've recently been reading this this really cool book by jeffrey west called scale which uh is modeling some of the underlying patterns that connect you know, like, why does, uh, uh, why do our lungs look like trees? You know, um, why do city, you know, maps or whatever look like, um, I don't have a specific sort of example there, but like the way that like things have these sort of fractal patterns and you can, you can predict them from each other anyway. So, mm. um, it, so it seems that like self-organizing systems have have certain characteristics that kind of necessarily need to work, um, you know. And there's a way in which you know a company with with you know some top level goal trickling down to a bunch of employees is you know a little bit like the perceptual control hierarchy in a in a person, um, and uh, and I think it's it's pretty clear if you understand the perceptual control model that the closer you make it to being like a perceptual hierarchy that that is a you know control system based the more effective it'll be as opposed to something like a command hierarchy where you're saying do this as opposed to achieve that result mm -hmm. um if you say do this 
then you get in, you run into all sorts of conflict with why the person isn't already doing this. Whereas if you say achieve that result, then it generates a kind of natural creativity towards how to achieve that result in, in response to whatever conflict is, might emerge when you attempt that. Sure. So, so that was a bit more about PCT, but, um, but yeah, so, so yeah, so both of these books for me have just really connected with some really fundamental, yeah, have sort of laid some really fundamental groundwork for understanding what's going on with, uh, with people, with motivation, with conversation and all of that stuff. And on a meta level, what I'll say is that I, I firmly see deeper, or I've come to appreciate how change always comes from deeper understanding. If you try to commit to something because it seems the most true, the only reason you would feel a need to commit to it is because some part of you actually thinks something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's reifying the very conflict that you're attempting, like that's strengthening and deepening the very conflict you're attempting to get yourself out of by committing. That's not to say that there aren't times when it makes sense to commit to something, you know, um, committing to a marriage relationship as part of the basis for having kids together is, you know, a very fundamental example, or, um, you know, going all in with a business partner on some project and, and the two of you being seriously into it together and needing to know that the other is into it in order to want to invest so much of yourself into it. Mm -hmm. Um, but committing to a way of seeing or a way of operating, as far as I can tell, is fundamentally confused hmm. because it represents attempting to win an internal conflict. It's like, it's like, you know, doubling down on, you know, the thermostat should be, you know, hot when there's, <laughs> when you haven't dealt with the thermostat being cold and it's like, hmm. Hmm. um, so, so this understanding comes in part out of, out of, my, my understanding of perceptual control theory, but it also applies to how like people will sometimes say, oh, well, we should, you know, we shouldn't control people uh, or, you know, we shouldn't uh, try to run a society like this or whatever, but, but they're, they're enacting it as a sort of moral should. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a kind of behavior, uh, sorry, it becomes a kind of um, injunction, a kind of, you know, behavioral command. Whereas if you, if you really grok perceptual control theory, it becomes silly to think that you would organize a society in a way that was based around controlling people. Right. Which is a totally different place to be operating from than like the idea that you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if we shouldn't, then why are we? If we shouldn't, then why do I feel like doing so? It doesn't, it doesn't the sure. should doesn't answer those questions. Sure. And so, so that's where I see these basic models of, um, of the brain, of the mind, of the, the nature of reality as we are able to perceive it with our, with our minds. That's why I see those, these as so transformational. And so having, having said that now about both perceptual control theory and McGill's um, brain hemisphere model, I'll now speak a little bit about what what was impactful about the the brain hemisphere thing, um, unless you want to comment on the sort of more meta thing I just said. Yeah. So just just briefly, um, it, it sounds to me almost like having those rules of say in society of, of like we should do this, we shouldn't do that. It almost feels like they are crutches that kind of enable good behavior um, when 
people receiving those aren't sufficiently self-aware to be, to be aware of their own internal parts and thus notice the conflict that might be present. Um, does, does that kind of make sense? I, I would say that's mostly true, but I would also I would also like to gently call into question the extent to which they actually achieve the things that they're that they sort of claim to do like hmm. it, you know a lot of uh deeply religious folks find themselves thinking that if if they turned atheist they would become immoral mm -hmm. or amoral or whatever um it turns out you just don't <laughs> it's it's kind of boring actually like it's kind of boring the extent to which atheists just also care about people and want to live well mm -hmm. but the religious propaganda department can kind of uh, you know make a, a really important case that like you know without uh you know without this fear of god people would you know do these all sorts of horrible things and sure mm -hmm. without fear of god people will do all sorts of things like eat pork and um you know uh, work on the Sabbath and, you know, like things that are horrible within the frame of the, um, the church, but they don't go start murdering people. Um, sure, sure. And so the, the question of where exactly ethics comes from is not as simple as, oh, well, the shoulds work. It's like, well, maybe, and maybe if you just took away the shoulds, there'd be a backlash. But that's because there's that conflict there in the first place. And the conflict yep. exists because the should is fighting the instincts. You know, the, the church is saying, or, or it's, and, and to be really clear, it's not just the church, right? Like we can actually, I'm going to make a jump here. You know, the teacher is saying, you can't move. You got to sit still in your desk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But your body wants to move. So what, what do you do with that, right? Like yep. it generates yep. this rebellion. And then, you know, if the teacher leaves the room, suddenly the kids are all rambunctious or whatever. But that's not because they lack discipline. It's it's because the whole imposition of discipline in the first place was fighting their mm -hmm. their intrinsic needs. And the perceptual control theory folks um, have a way of approaching classrooms that seems to work way better. That's about helping people care for the underlying needs rather and while avoiding disrupting each other, rather than uh, focused on trying to control the behavior of the students. Right. Um, right. Yep. Yeah, what what so, comes to yeah. what just just briefly what comes to mind there is is um, an analogy to <clears throat> when people and I'm speaking like myself included in this category of who've been very much in their head for most of their lives and then they start to come back into their body and and those sensations and awareness comes more in line. There's often like an overreaction or an overcorrection um, that's present because all of these things suddenly come online at once and it feels potentially overwhelming. Totally, um, because there's been such a, a deep sense of disconnection for so long. And so it could take some time, like with the thermostat, to just kind of re-regulate and to a kind of more of a, a homeostasis. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, sometimes there's a kind of almost a need for like an arms reduction, where it's like, mm. you know, you can't just have one side unilaterally drop all of its pulling, because then the other side would just yank it way over there. So there needs sure. to be a kind of sensing yeah, into, yeah. oh, you're pulling because you, if you don't pull, then like I'll pull it way over here, but I don't actually even want to go way over there. I just want like another <laughs> little notch, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I'm pulling. Cause I, if you, I don't, if I don't pull, you'll drag us way over there, but you don't actually want to go way over there. You just want, you know, another tick that way. And then it's like, can we, you know, find a space where we can both be, you know, comfortable, you know, e ease off the um, tug of war. Hmm. Yeah. Cool.
nice so was was there anything more you wanted to, to add to that or I guess I'll just say one last piece about that, which was when I was uh, maybe 20 or so, maybe maybe slightly younger than that, I read uh, The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. Um, and it's a book about neuroplasticity. Um, hmm. You know, the, the idea that the brain can change in ways that stick. Mm-hmm. And it's remarkable. Part of Part of the thing that the book says is that people for a long time for whatever reasons had models that said after childhood the brain doesn't really change that much Mm -hmm. it's kind of bizarre to think that people had models like this because demonstrably people learn new skills they learn new languages they 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 transform in so many ways after adulthood right but people had these models and the models reinforce the very limitations that they that they have and so i guess i would just name that as a kind of an early example for me of you know learning about the brain in a way that felt like it liberated me and brought brought more clarity to me um and uh yeah it just felt felt worth kind of mentioning that mm, um got it and and that's that's a very different approach to trying to increase someone's sort of orientation towards learning and growing than trying to sort of convince them of you know well, you should try harder or you should whatever, or, you know, like any sort of argument. It's like, like, no, look at these fundamentals. See, see how it works. See, see how that's possible for you. Um, It's a different, it's a totally different kind of way of communicating about it. Yeah. I I really love that perspective. It's, it feels much more, much more empowering. Um, Yeah, exactly. This, this this is a bit of a tangent, but um, from what I've been learning about breathwork and breathwork journeys recently, part of what I think is so compelling about it is that when we are in this state of, of kind of deep al- alkalosis and the, the the blood chemistry changes when we're kind of midway through these journeys, the degree of neuroplasticity is is a lot higher than in everyday life. So any changes in, say, the repatterning of breath um, or, or things that are released tend to stick um, in the longer term. And it's it's something that I've been just really interested in. So I'd actually love to love to read that book at some point um so this feels like an interesting segue to uh you have a a concept of dream mashups which Mm -hmm. i think might um kind of highlight some of what we've just been talking about in terms of the perception theory um and i i think one of the questions that you that you wrote which i think is, is a really powerful question is what do you do if you notice someone else is is dreaming i.e kind of lost in in some kind of trigger and i think this is really it's challenging especially in intimate relationships and um as you wrote in this post there's also a high risk of conscious or even unconscious manipulation that could be present um and and you know if you if you say this to someone it has a tendency to backfire totally Um, so i think yeah it's just such a really important question to explore since a lot of us are walking around with entirely different lenses on the world that are just reflecting our respective life histories and emotionally charged prior experiences. Um, so the the question, I, I guess, is, is kind of two parts. Um, firstly, how would you think about waking yourself up from these, these dream mashups? And then with that in mind, what might be an approach that we could take if we sense or guess that someone else might be projecting onto us or in, caught in some kind of, of trigger? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, this is such a tough question. Um, 
but I guess, you know, I can connect it a little bit with the, with some of the McGilchrist stuff as well, which is mm. there can be a kind of narrowing, a kind of grasping um, that occurs. Mm -hmm. And if you can even make space for just a little pause, like you don't have to change anything. You don't have to see anything differently. You don't have to do anything differently. Certainly um, you don't have to like what's happening, you know, really giving yourself freedom to not, you know, you don't need to do any of those, but can you just pause for a moment and become aware of what is feeling so urgently important to you in a given moment? and find a way to honor that urgency, which might be just doing the thing that feels so urgent, but doing it from a more conscious place of there's something that feels really important to me that I have to do and I'm going to do it as opposed to just kind of a flinch response. Mm -hmm. Or you might discover, oh, actually like having paused for a second, I know what this is about. I'm afraid that my current partner is gonna do this bullshit that my previous partner did and, I, you know, I'm not actually really worried about that with this partner when I really think about it. You might, mm -hmm. you might discover that there's some more space like that. Right. But importantly, if you, if you try to tell yourself that, then you're fighting yourself. Whatever part of you is carrying that concern, that concern that maybe this, you know, maybe my partner's going to whatever, like my past partner, or that, that concern that, you know, um, this person I'm talking to online is just trying to, you know, take advantage of me or that concern that, you know, um, whatever's going on. If, if you try to tell yourself that to sort of reassure yourself or, um, you know, convince yourself, then you're, you're in an argument and what, what's actually needed as far as I can tell from all the learning that I've done about emotional coherence and everything else, what's actually needed is to fully invite out and embrace the perception that you are having, the one that you're trying to argue against, to, to fully invite that out. Mm -hmm. And then when it can be invited out and it can actually dialogue with the world mm -hmm. as opposed to just kind of like, you know, being kind of trapped in its like locked up, uh, you know, flinch response state. Um, then there can be a bit more space. And... So the way that I would talk about going about doing that is kind of just like seeing how much of you can welcome whatever whatever's arising and say, you know, I don't totally understand this, but apparently part of me genuinely is worried that, you know, whatever thing my partner is doing right now is a sign of something really bad mm -hmm. or genuinely worried that whatever, whatever it is, just really honoring like part of me actually thinks this there's a tendency when arguing with other people or ourselves to kind of speak with almost like a, oh you can't actually think this because clearly blah 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 <laughs> which it doesn't work because you're not engaging with the reality of what's there and mm -hmm. sometimes even just really thoroughly engaging with the reality of what's there is enough to to shift it in some way and sometimes it's not and that's, I mean, you really need to give it that space to shift or not based on its own sense-making. Um, because otherwise, otherwise the welcoming is just a form of manipulation, right? Yeah. And just to add a, like a neuroscience perspective on that as well, I, I think what I've noticed is really important is 
is increasing um, what's known as, as neuroception, which is like overall sense of safety, because it sounds like that part just simply feels unsafe to be fully expressed. So doing whatever kind of practices or protocols that you have to increase a felt sense of safety is probably going to be most mm-hmm. the thing that's most likely to allow it to uh, come forward and be fully expressed. Yeah. And, and it is important to distinguish the kind of overall sense of safety from whatever concern that part actually has. Like w- when I'm doing this and it works really well, I'm taking a kind of profoundly agnostic stance where it's sort of like, oh, like I have this fear. Could that just be true? What if that were true? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and just what what's going on here is a shift from a kind of, um, it, it's it's funny because it, it's like, it's the most insecure people who feel the, the most need to justify. And it's, it's, it's actually a sign of self-trust. So, so let's, let's take a, you know, this, this thing I was saying earlier about like committing to a way of being as being fundamentally confused. If you really trust that this way of being is better and you really trust the parts of you that understand that. Yep then you don't need to argue against parts of you that are generating strategies that contradict that, that, that way of being. Mm-hmm, totally. Because you know that it's better. You're not afraid of it <laughs> somehow convincing you that no, like this you know, way of think, relating to the world that is specifically associated with this traumatic memory from when you were four is like definitely the way that you should be relating to the world. You're not worried about that. Yeah, sure. It might have something important to say though, so you do need to listen to it and incorporate it into the overall sense making of your system. Yeah. But you're not worried that the core truths that are so self-evident when you see them in their self-evidentness, you don't have to worry about losing touch with those because they're so self-evident. How could you possibly lose touch with them? And even if you do lose touch with them, how could you possibly stay out of touch with them? Because eventually you'll find your way back because it's true. And, mm. and that's sort of what it means to trust your own sense making. Um, beautiful yeah yeah and it, it um it makes me think of also there's a real parallel here i think to say somatic experiencing work where um even if there's not necessarily a story but just if there's some kind of tension or sensation or stuckness let's say like a, a tightness in the belly or, or around the diaphragm by not only investigating it but but actively trying to amplify the sensation mm, that it's support present, it yeah yeah it, it almost like brings it out into its fullness and from that place it can then shift or be reintegrated or be released exactly yeah which is that shift from fighting yourself to embracing yourself completely yeah 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 um man this is (laughs) this is really interesting um i'd love to yeah i'm gonna hit the pinball machine again and uh i want to talk about i want to make a quick um a quick comment just you know because i i feel like i still haven't really you know uh I am, we don't have to get to everything obviously. Right. But there's, there's this question of like, what did McGilchrist do for me? And without Mm, trying to summarize the model too much, the, you know, the left hemisphere is very either or in how it sees the world. Mm -hmm. And so the left hemisphere has a lot of trouble dealing with, I know X and I also seem to know not X. I know I'm safe. I also, I don't feel safe. It's, it's like you, you can't resolve that in its own terms. You've got to kind of somehow hold it like these, like these questions, you know, um, these paradoxes and say, okay, well, somehow it's somehow something is true that could be described as X and something else is true that could be described as not X. Somehow both of those are the case. Like, I don't know how, but that's the world that I'm living in. And 
again, in terms of, you know, deepening understanding leading to more empowerment, it's like, I realized I was trying to do a bunch of both and stuff in a kind of mechanical way with my left hemisphere. And it was a lot easier once I understood more of how the brain hemispheres worked for my left hemisphere to kind of let go and say, oh, you know what? The right hemisphere's got this. Like, I, this is actually not my job. Mm. That was really mm. beautiful for me and relates to that whole like deepening self-trust thing. Mm. Is there a specific example where you've almost given the reins over to your right hemisphere, like something in everyday life or a moment that comes to mind? Yeah, let's see. I would say probably I don't have I don't have a specific memory in mind, but just on a on a kind of general level, um, there have been times when I've been in a conversation that's got some sort of tension to it and or some you know co complexity intensity, um, and I get this urge to you know blurt something out to just like say something um, mm -hmm. and. And I can tell that that urge is coming from this like left hemispheric quality of like, no, but you don't see the thing. I'm right about the thing. You got to, you know, I, like, and like I said earlier, just taking, you know, taking a moment, you know, to just pause and kind of go, what actually happens if I don't, if I don't say this thing right now that feels so important to say, can, can I, can I find out, do I have the space to find out? And there's something about that, which has a kind of quality of surrender to it a little bit, right? Because it's, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it, I'm, 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 I'm letting go of this sense that I can steer the thing, which may be more or less accurate, depending on the situation, whether I can actually steer it if I've learned a thing or not. Mm -hmm. um, but letting go of that and saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to let this unfold. And, but I'm not, I'm not just like, you know, throwing my hands, I'm like, well, I was just going to do its thing. You know, there's a kind of like, I can trust some deeper part of me to improvise with this. Right. And that's, that was what really became more apparent as I understood the brain hemispheres, because it's hard for the left hemisphere to even thoroughly fathom that the right hemisphere exists because <laughs> there's a way in which it's like the right yeah, hemisphere is like God. It works in mysterious ways as far as the left hemisphere is concerned. And so right. It feels a little bit like surrendering to God to just say, well, right hemisphere, do your thing, I guess. It's like, it's very, it's, it's, it's unsettling, right? It's, you know, it, uh -huh. it's the right, the right hemisphere by its nature cannot simply explain and justify everything it's doing to the left. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, you, you need a balance too, right? Because if you're simply just saying, well, I'm going to go with the flow and I'm not going to, you know, voice any of these concerns, then you know, sooner or later, one of those concerns will get very concerned and will, you know, make itself known in a pretty intense way, which is, you know, another example of this kind of oscillation dynamic. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I love that example. And um, my, uh, both Kelly and I have um, separately, we ended up reading some of Michael Singer's work, and, and he talks a lot about kind of the, the beauty in surrendering to life, and to kind of accepting the invitations that, that come your way. And for me, I, I think this probably ties back to what you were just talking about in terms of self-trust and, and like a deep sense of secureness in your own nature and your own belonging and your own place in the world. And that w once that is in place, then it almost feels like there is a, a greater permission to trust the right hemisphere to a greater degree, as opposed to the more graspy kind of controlling, planning uh, tendencies of the left hemisphere which is I, mm -hmm. I think how a lot of us have been rewarded and conditioned in you know in school and in at work and things but I, I think it's certainly part of the journey that I'm on which is learning to 
trust the right hemisphere more and to trust my capacity to empathize and to respond well in the moment as opposed to having a a plan or an if this then that scenario for everything that could possibly arise which is very exhausting yeah totally (laughs) and you know there's maybe a connection here in that like you know the left hemisphere is is made for interfacing with objects not not people um Mm -hmm. including not even really oneself like one's own being in the world um and so you know when when school or our parents or whatever you know force us to find some way to control ourselves it's like they are implicitly treating us as an object and 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 demanding mm. that we find a way to treat ourselves as an object that we can mm. control and that naturally invites the right or sorry the left hemisphere to clamp down its grasp on the on the body and on the behavior and so forth and yeah, that was a connection I hadn't quite made before. Where whereas it's like, if you're if you know that you're relating with another control system, whether that's you know an internal relationship between these two you know two control systems that are you know one of them wants to uh, you know go play and the other wants you know to you know finish the work that you're doing and both of these are meaningful things to do but like you can't do both of them at once and you know mm-hmm. if you, if you know that you're relating with another control system. And you really get that, and you really get what that means, then the idea that you should, you know, escalate the fight doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You, you know that that'll just come back to bite you. And I, I think that that viewpoint can be consciously understood by the left hemisphere, which is really mind blowing. And that's part of what's mm-hmm. novel about this point in history is we actually have enough models to huh. rigorously understand what's going on with, you know, ourselves and each other. And right, right, right. You know, I think systems thinking uh, in, in its various forms, including perceptual control theory, is one of the most powerful upgrades you can give your left hemisphere because it's like mm. it improves the, the capacity of the left hemisphere to dialogue with the stuff that the right hemisphere kind of gets intuitively. Mm. Like mm-hmm. the right hemisphere kind of gets that you can't you can't just control other people. But but by default, the, the right hemisphere doesn't necessarily know how to explain that to the left. I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing terribly here, but um, you get the no, idea. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And it reminds me of, um, in, say, in say, different forms of meditation, the, if you follow a certain technique kind of long enough or, or, or deep enough or sit with a, sit with a Cohen or, or ask the question, who am I, kind mm-hmm. of rigorously enough, then eventually you're, you're almost using the mind to overcome the mind until the mind kind of drops away. It's like you need exactly. a ladder to, to get to a certain point where you can kind of kick away the ladder and you're fine. And yeah. it's almost like if you if you follow this theory and, and you understand it deeply enough, the mind realizes the limitations of the mind, which yeah, yeah I think is, is really uh, interesting. That, that's such a great pitch for me, Gilchrist. It's like helping the mind understand the limits of mind. It's like uh-huh. that's the, where, where by mind, what we're referring to is the left hemisphere. It's not the, actually the, the, you know, there's an entire other half of yeah. the brain that's not being meant when we talk about mind, but is yeah. actually part of the whole sense-making system as well, which is kind of mind-blowing when you, well, mind-blowing when you realize it, that what we even think of as our thinking process is so far from all of our thinking process. Totally, totally, yeah. Um, and, and particularly, I mean, what I've been just obsessed with recently, all of the different implicit memories that are stored in our kind of extended mind within our greater nervous system and how much these are kind of controlling us without our really knowing. Um, mm mm-hmm. 
Yeah, wow. Okay, so, um, all right, switching gears. You have one more pinball to hit, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I probably, I don't know if there were several more, but I, I, I think we'll run out of time at some point. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, briefly around domino memes uh, and and maybe oh, as, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as context for listeners, um, we've both created our own versions of this meme that's essentially a guy knocking down one small domino that then knocks into several bigger ones as a way of like attempting to articulate the different levels of impact that we're hoping to make in the world. And... Yours begins with, I'll just read them out, tweets about self-energizing motivation uh, with the first domino. And then that knocks into barn raisings that I want to ask you about. And barn raisings knocks into a network of collaborative feral free agents, um, which then hits the big domino of growing self-energizing meta team, having fun solving big problems. So there's obviously a lot to <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Yeah, these, these um, are all kind of uh, obscure terms, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but um, may, maybe we could start with what, what what do you mean by barn raisings and what do you mean by feral free agents? Well, I, I think we should first talk about what self-energizing means. Sure. Um, because I don't think that's totally obvious either. Although I think it makes a lot more sense in light of the whole conversation we've just had than than it might otherwise. Okay. So let's go there. You know, if you're if you're working at a company and you don't really like the job that you're doing but you just you want to get paid and maybe the job is kind of interesting you know it's not like you ended up somewhere completely random you were sort of following what what appealed to you but you're but you don't really just like in, intuitively love the work that you're doing you wouldn't do it for free there's this way in which like you you are then trying to somehow pipe your desire for money into your motivation system to get you to do arbitrary stuff this doesn't work very well. Hmm. Like it, it works. I mean, people do it obviously because they have to. Hmm. Um, but it 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 contains within it the kinds of um, issues that show up with this, you know, internal conflict of the you know the AC and the, and the furnace and so on. You know, because you would rather be doing something else. There is something else that would feel really good to do. And instead, you're doing this thing so that you can get this money. And you want the money enough because you need to eat that you do the thing anyway. But it does, it's sort of pushing against your own natural inclination. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, 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 you know, your inclination can transform. Like, it's not like you have a static, you know, this is the sort of thing I like doing and I don't like doing these other things and so on. Cal Newport talks about how, like, if you get really good at anything, it can become really satisfying. Mm -hmm. But having said that, you know, some people are going to really want to get good at some things and not others. And so, so when I talk about self-energizing motivation, what I'm talking about is sometimes, you know, when you realize something's possible, you're not just like down to do it. You actually would have to restrain yourself not to. Mm, I love this. Yeah. It, it, it would take more effort, more mm. try, more, more energy. Negative effort, as, as you said on Twitter. Exactly. It would take more energy not to do the thing than to do it. Yep. You don't have to drum up the motivation and use a commitment device when your lover texts you and says, hey, you know, you free tonight? <laughs> like you know yeah 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 totally like you know oh i gotta put that on the to-do list i gotta like make a commitment you know tell my friend i'm definitely gonna go over that, and you know, like that would that would make a great sketch like a great comedy sketch of, of like that would be pretty funny actually yeah 
And so it's like, you know, similarly, there are creative projects that for various people take in some important sense, less energy to do than not to do. And so then the puzzle becomes, well, how do you find out what those are? Like, how do you discover what those things are? And then there's another whole question, which is how do you sort of, how do you support all the auxiliary things that need to be in place? You know, I, I love the design work that I do with Complice and I love the impact that it has on people and, you know, how much they love, you know, uh, encountering this new way of relating to, to goals and so on. But sometimes I don't really feel like fixing some bugs, you know, mm-hmm. those bugs have to get fixed in order to, in order for the system to be working that I do so much love working on. And so, you know, you can sometimes encounter kind of sub problems of a given project that you don't have as much intrinsic appetite for. Hopefully you at least have enough intrinsic appetite for the whole thing that it sort of carries you through solving this, this problem. Mm -hmm. But, but even better is if you can find a way for the sub problem to also become exciting, or you can find someone who you might hire who would love to help you with that sub problem. Totally. Um, and then, you know, then the reason you're paying them is not so that they'll take this awful burden on themselves instead of on you. You're paying them so that they don't have to work doing some other bullshit. <laughs> like you're paying them so that they are free to do this thing that they'd love to do, which frees up you to do the things that you love to do. Yeah, sure. That's, and that's it's cool. a totally different concept of, of an economy. So barn yeah, raising. <laughs> just, no, just, just, just before we go into uh, that... Um... A couple of things. It, it a reminds me of um, Liz Gilbert talks about the idea of like eating eating the shit sandwich, but but it sounds like you're kind of suggesting that the shit sandwich should be then turned into something <laughs> potentially palatable for someone else. Um, well, I mean, and- flies flies are stoked, right? <laughs> to eat some shit. You know, they would love to digest Re- that. Recruit, and recruit then, the know, flies. Yeah, um, completely. You know, there's some. I don't know. Use it as compost for the for the garden, etc. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I don't know what the whole life cycle is of what happens <laughs> when the flies eat the shit. Morning, but yeah, but, you um, know, you get the idea, right? Like that that shit is actually food to someone, but it's not food to you. Completely, completely. Um, so this this kind of reminds me of uh, another one of our mutual friends, Paul. He was curious to ask what you think are some possible on ramps for this this like feral free agent world, and and it sounds like to me what you're describing is almost like how can we help people who are currently entrenched in the kind of nine to five world how can we help them reconnect with the the work or the creativity that they can't not do and kind of tap into that innate energy source of negative effort um totally yeah and you know i i i've kind of i've i've somewhat given up trying to you know not that this was ever really my my thing but I've somewhat given up trying to sort of, you know, convince people to, to leave, leave their jobs or whatever. Right. Because it's like, people are ready when they're ready. And some people, some people really like having the structure of a job, you know, even, and they like that, even if the work is sometimes not really what excites them. It's just, there's something that feels really like, you know, safe and stable and solid about a job or whatever. But there are a lot of people also who are kind of chafing at the experience of, of the, you know, the lack of autonomy that they have in the companies that they, that they work for or the Mm -hmm. um, whatever else. And so, you know, for people who are getting curious about it, I mean, one, one thing that I'm doing is, is just like role modeling, right? Like just being a person who's living in a different way. Mm -hmm. 
and and that makes a difference. You know, I would have had trouble pursuing um, starting Complice as a as a passive income sort of business. I would have had trouble pursuing that if I hadn't been you know spent a bunch of my teens reading lifestyle bloggers like Leo Babautubs yeah, and it's Habits huge. and it's huge. I, I forget the other ones, but you know, like a bunch of people who were making a living just on the internet somehow. What you know, mm-hmm. whatever that looked like, and you know, in the four hour work week and so on, just the idea that that was possible was, was huge, you know, just a proof of concept. So, so that's one piece. Um, and then there's a piece about like communicating to people kind of like what it's like, or, or, you know, how they might get little tastes of it. Um, and I, I had a, uh, a, a tweet recently that was like, there's a moment in the feral free agent journey when you close the loop, when you have made something you love and someone bought it and you go, Oh, I want to live like that. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a friend buying what you made is a good step, but it hits different when it's a stranger. Mm, Totally. So, so that's kind of, you know, that's another piece, right? Just conveying the, that, and, you know, I think I could probably deepen that tweet tremendously, right. By like, helping people find an on-ramp to doing a tiny version of that. You know, do you make drawings? Well, who might want to buy one? Can you, you know, are your drawings even for sale? Can you find a way to do that? Like, you know, um, and not everybody wants to sell their drawings, you know, like my relationship with music is like, um, I'm fine getting paid to make music, but there's actually something that's really beautiful about how nobody's expecting me to make it. Like there's no, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not expected to do any particular shows. I don't have to, you know, release an album every couple of years to keep, you know, some label or my fans happy or whatever. Like I just, my music gets to totally bubble out from within me. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, you know, I'm, I'm down to get paid for it. Right. Like, (laughs) yeah. Anyway. So, so that's another whole piece. Um, But the barn raisings thing is actually, you know, if we want to get through these dominoes is actually another piece that I'm working on, which is uh, around helping more people, you know, make that, that leap into being feral free agents. And the basic idea is, you know, if you think of, you know, a literal barn raising, it's a, it's a community getting together to help get somebody's core business infrastructure off the ground, literally off the ground in the case of a barn, right? Mm-hmm. My, my idea was, what if we did something like that, but for internet businesses, or, or not necessarily internet businesses, but, you know, like not, not farming, right? Um, and... <laughs> And businesses that at least can be supported via the internet so that, you know, we don't actually all have to be in the same place to set up the physical infrastructure. Sure, yeah. And so the basic idea goes something like this. Somebody has a business that they want to work on, that they've already been working on at least for a while. You know, they they have some sort of proof of concept, some prototype, some minimum viable product or something like that. Um, And they need just a bit of a nudge to kind of get off the ground. And that nudge could be logistical, you know, maybe they just, they need help actually setting up a website because they're not, they're not, you know, technically whatever, or, or they need help setting up a payment system because they've never whatever before, or they, you know, they need, um, you know, help uh, coding some integration or something, or, you know, so it could be, or, so yeah, so it could be more technical help. It could be more, more marketing help. You know, they, they don't have a big following, right? They've just, they, but they built this really cool thing that everybody who looks at goes, this is so cool. And, you know, maybe some people help them like find some, you know, some good leads or some good channels to do some marketing in, or they, you know, they need, um, 
maybe they even just on some level need some psychological support, right? Like they need to feel the reality of their own project. They need to feel the sense of like, oh, this thing could be real. Mm -hmm. And in any of those cases, or maybe, you know, some, some amount of all of those elements, the basic idea is we get a group of people together for, you know, a day or half a day or something like that. And the person with the business puts forth, here's all the things I could use help with. And then the people who've shown up help with whatever they feel like helping with. And so the, this, you can see here where the self-energizing thing ties in because the participants in some sense are volunteers, but volunteer is even sort of slightly the wrong word. They're helping because they want to help. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. not self-sacrificial. There's not some like moralizing aspect to it. No, it's not moralizing. It's not, it's not charity. You know, they're helping because it's fun. They, they want to work on a project. They want to contribute to somebody else. It feels yeah. good. And, and, then, and that feels much better to receive as well, I think, rather than totally. on, the, on the receiving end of someone's charity. <laughs> it doesn't feel right, good. right, exactly. Um, yeah. So a ton of stuff gets done, you know, and we, we've, ru- we've run one of these so far um, and it, it went really well. You know, the, the folks were shipping a kind of um, API for, um, for bookings um, like booking out a room or a, some rentable object or something. And they got, you know, they got some, somebody wrote a wrapper for the API, somebody, you know, fixed some bugs, somebody like a bunch of people went, just went through the onboarding process and took really detailed notes, which is sometimes just hard to get people to do. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but it's sort of hard to get people to do in the context of, you know, reaching out for a favor. But at the point when you've shown up to help somebody with a project for a few hours, it feels like a pretty, small thing to just spend half an hour looking at the thing and familiarizing yourself with it and commenting on the things that you found confusing you know it feels like a pretty small thing in that context um and you know some people ideated different name ideas for the company um we wrote a couple of uh uh sort of like documents that were sort of they, they, they weren't finished but they were the kind of articles you put on your website that's like should you use our product or build your own and of course obviously almost always the answer is you should use our product, right? But you got to kind of make the case. Um, Mm. And, uh, or, you know, comparison with different competitors, like why is our system better and so on. And so people just worked on all of these different projects. But then part of what's cool about this is that unlike a hackathon where you get a bunch of energy, but then nothing really happens afterwards. Right, right. Because you already have people who are oriented towards, you know, this is my business, this is, this is my work. This is what I, you know, am passionate about or what I'm trying to achieve. Like they're going to take it forward one way or another. They then become stewards of that project. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like all of that effort goes somewhere. It, it, it launches something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and so what I'm realizing is I actually hadn't quite noticed this so clearly, but the barn raisings actually help with the feral free agents and the whole self-energizing thing in two ways. One is that they help get more people off the ground with their businesses. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is that, as I was saying, the participants who are coming to help, um, maybe I should just call them helpers. I don't know. Um, the, um, <laughs> the folks who are coming to help, they, uh, they, are, they are getting to work in this self-energizing way. Right, you right, know, right, right. Nobody's yeah, yeah. telling them what to do. There's yeah, just yeah, here's yeah. a project. Do you so want to work on that? Here's another e- project. You know, everyone here's is kind of benefiting from the process of, 
of contributing as well as exactly and so and so they get the experience of working in in that more self-energizing way but having that fuel some real project as opposed to just well you know i had fun for a couple hours screwing around on this whatever thing but like nothing really came of it it's like no Mm -hmm. my my self-energizing effort fueled this project and i i expect it you know as we do more of these and i'm aiming to run about one a month maybe even slightly more than that over the next year or so um so if you're listening to this and you have a business that could use a little help getting off the ground, let me know. We'll also put a link um, in the show notes to where you can go and like sign up to be notified about when we're doing more barn raisings. Yep. Um, yep. So um, as we do more of these, I expect there will also be situations where, you know, somebody shows up on a Saturday and, you know, uses some skill that they've been kind of refining on their, on, in their free time for, you know, to help out this this company you say they make some graphics for the website or something Mm. and then um a few months later the the uh that company needs more graphics right and so they reach out to the person and say hey actually can we pay you to make more graphics for the site and if the person is you know loves doing this graphic art they might be like holy shit yeah like (laughs) and so it's like it's a way into freelancing then that isn't even you don't have to even start by trying to get customers, you know, uh-huh, marketing, uh-huh. right? Like there's this huge shame of like freelancers have to also be marketers in order to get any business. Yeah. Yeah. In even fact, if they just, don't, even if that's not their forte, that's not what they're about. Sure. But instead, if you can build a network of relationships, and I mean, this is not my primary aim. It's just, it's something I think will happen as a byproduct somewhat like, you know, at least a little bit, like, I'd be surprised if a year from now, there hadn't been any further collaborations between people who have done, you know, barn raisings together. Um, Totally. Yeah. Totally awesome. Um, So, um, so, so, so then you can see how that creates the network of collaborative feral free mm -hmm. agents, because it's not just people working on random businesses together. It's people who helped each other get off the ground, you know, people who are uh, supporting each other in whatever various ways. and then as those people start saying, well, what do we want to do now? What, do we, what, what problems in the world do we feel like we want to tackle with our skills and so on? They mm. can start organizing themselves into, you know, into you know, teams for whatever various sizes of purposes to work on, work on these problems. And mm-hmm. in the background there, there's kind of another domino, which is like people need to actually practice being good at teamwork. Yeah, <laughs> and one of the there's a whole bunch the of skills there, and there's a whole bunch of models again about the brain, totally. you know, or about uh, communication or or conversation that are part of what it means to become good at teamwork, and so that's also part of um, part of what people would be doing, I think, more or less. You know, some people are just going to show up; they're going to help with stuff. They they don't care about like you know becoming a like 99th percentile like general purpose collaborative teammate right like some that's uh-huh. just not yeah. what some people's jam is right but for other people it's like oh holy shit yeah i want to become really really good at giving feedback in ways that don't make people defensive or really right. really good at receiving feedback without getting defensive or i want to become really really good at listening and deeply understanding what somebody wants or you know like these these kind of core meta skills yeah yeah it it it, it almost makes work a kind of vehicle for um really essential human skills and, and kind of personal development whilst also creating useful things i, I think it's exactly it's really powerful. exactly and um, it's, it's harder to do that kind of development in a sort of boring ordinary company because people are too afraid of messing up yeah 
yeah and there's you not know, the, too afraid the of not of already being good enough at something safety in the culture yeah yeah i, I, I totally agree um, yeah whereas if you're all sort of free agents to begin with and you you have your own um you know flow of income and flow of you know resources and so on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know you don't have the same kind of fear of oh if i piss this person off like that there goes my livelihood yeah completely completely um yeah th- this this reminds me as well of uh something else i wanted to talk to you about was your the google doc that you sent um a few weeks ago around your your 100x vision and in that you talked mm-hmm. about um the collective brain and how that kind of evolves into the collective body and the collective crowd um but i, I i'm wondering actually so i <laughs> made it about halfway through the notes of all the different things i wanted to touch on and, and I, I wonder about maybe planting a flag for around two and maybe kind of uh, there was also, that sounds also great. Some, yeah, yeah. Some, some thoughts around, uh, I want to hear more about the intentional community that you sent a very kind of cryptic tweet about in British Columbia. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, there, there are definitely a, a number of other topics I'd love to dive into. But I, I think let's, if it's all right with you, let's transition into a few kind of final rapid fire questions, and then we can round up the episode and uh, tease for, for round two at some point. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, perfect. So um, the the four rapid fire questions that, that came to mind this morning, just before I um, jumped on the call, were the first is, what practice, ritual, or psychotechnology has made a distinct impact on the quality of your lived experience? This is going to sound, I mean, the, psychotechnology is such a general category, you know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, everything from, you know, you could talk about psychedelics, or you could talk about like a workflow for your conversation or your writing, you know, like, there's just such a wide range of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, but, but one of the things I actually am inclined to, oh, actually, yeah, here's, here's a good, here's a good answer. This is something that's kind of on my edge too. something I've just recently been, um, been exploring, which is, um, I take days off now. Um, I didn't do that for a long time. Um, I didn't even know what that would mean. I mean, I like the work that I do. What, why would I take a day off from it? Right. Mm. But my days off are, are, are the days off of somebody who likes their work, which means that, you know, it's not that I say I'm not allowed to work on my days off in, in a certain sense of what work means. But um, my friend Yatharth had this great quote, which is what made work work was that there was something else I wanted to be doing. Mm. Yeah. You know, work in the shitty sense. Right. Sure. And what made it effortful, right? Um, which is this negative energy thing. Because of course, you know, something might be pretty negative energy for you in general, but like, you know, if somebody, you know, texts you in the, when you're in the middle of watching a movie and they say, hey, do you want to do this thing that you usually love doing, but you're in the middle of a movie, you're like, no, I'm going to finish my movie, right? Like, um, or whatever else, right? You're just, you're not in the mood. You're not in, you're not in the groove for it. So the yeah. way that I do my days off is, um, and I'll, I'll try to keep this short because it's supposed to be rapid fire, but, and I have a thread or two about this too, which you could link to, but basically day off means two things. One, I don't schedule anything in advance for that day. Hmm. I might have something on my calendar if it's like an event that I could optionally choose to go to, like, but I make it very clear that, you know, just because you invite me to such an event on, you know, on my day off does not mean I'm going to be there. Um, hmm. And you know, if somebody's trying to schedule something with me where they expect me to be there, I, you know, it's, it's scary, but also kind of empowering to say, 
nope, I'm not available that day because my I have nothing on my calendar and I intend to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a crazy thing to say, right? You know, <laughs> Facebook even literally, you know, if you get invited to an event, it's like, yes, maybe can't go. Right. Not right. won't go, not don't feel <laughs> like it, not want to do other things instead, but can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Totally, totally. That's interesting. <laughs> um, and so... So it's, but it's been really empowering. And because I, I talk about it as my day off, as just like a fact of the world that I don't schedule things on that day, um, I found people actually respect it a lot. Um, you know, like more than I sort of thought, I thought it would be a lot harder to tell people, no, I'm not free that day. It's my day off. But like, mm. it just actually is totally fine. People are pretty chill about it. Um, mm. It's not, sometimes they don't get it exactly, but it, you know, it, it works. <laughs> Um, and then, oh, and then the other key piece of having a, a true day off is that I start the day with no open browser tabs. Huh. Right. And that's because what I want is to be acting in a way that comes from what I'm, what I feel like, what I, what's sort of simmering on the kind of deeper, slower levels. And yeah, if yeah. I, if I start my day with nothing on my calendar and a ton of random tabs open, yep. Uh, I'm just going to be doing random stuff, right? Like just randomly responding to all these tabs that are open. And that can even be fun. And I do a lot of that the rest of the week, but on my Mm -hmm. days off, I want to just do whatever I feel like. And I want to have that bubble up from what I feel like inside. So Mm. that's, that's my answer to, you know, impactful psychotechnology. I wouldn't necessarily say most impactful, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. And it's, it's a new thing that I've just been trying. And I think it's really cool. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's an awesome answer. And I'm um, deviating slightly from the <laughs> rapid fire questions myself as well. Um, something Kelly and I have been doing recently, we call it Sacred Sundays. And it's basically just um, almost zero or minimal technology and similar kind of completely empty calendars and just time to connect with each other and kind of see what feels good in the moment. And I, I think this kind of touches on um, may, maybe kind of the flip side or... or a use case for commitment devices are more like creative constraints mm-hmm. where where we're kind of um allowing for the emergence of, of something deeper to come through that we might not be aware of if we were just kind of in our default mode of being and, yes. and i think that's that's yeah. really that's really and powerful if, and if we can really thoroughly honor that when we create commitment devices we are we are blocking something that we want Truly, mm-hmm. you know, not something that we, you know, are addicted to, you know, not framing it in any kind of negative way, but just simply like, no, I actually, I want to be on Twitter a lot. That's true. Um, but sometimes I like taking a day off Twitter and, you know, the feeling of I'm, I'm creating space for something else by temporarily, and, and the temporariness of it really helps too, as opposed to kind of, you know, trying yeah. to commit to no longer whatever. Um, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah, it, it also makes me think of um, like the, the context in which the negative effort is comes from, because I, I mean, to kind of tie it back to the nervous system, um, we might feel amazing in a kind of creative, sympathetic state flow for three or four hours. But then, you know, ultimately, we also need to honor our bodies need to rest and recover and to kind of drop into the parasympathetic and to and to, to exhale metaphorically mm-hmm. and, and maybe right you can't exhale. just always be breathing in right yeah exactly and so i think that it kind of speaks to um that even if that deep excitement and enthusiasm is there it's also you know we go through these 
daily and weekly and, and annual cycles in our bodies that also need to be honored as part of this process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, interesting. Totally. Okay, cool. So <laughs> uh, rapid fire question number two, uh, what is one less intuitive productivity tip that you might share with listeners? I mean, I could just literally say the day off thing. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a good one. Um, third question, how do you define home? What does home mean to you? Oh, I mean, maybe the, maybe the quickest way I can answer that is just reading out from, from a piece I wrote about that. <laughs> mm, please do. Um, I am home to the extent that, and in the ways that I can relax knowing that the systems around me aren't going to subvert my needs and wants whether malevolently or carelessly, and will in general support them. And to the extent that, and in the ways that, I feel and am empowered to make the changes I need or want to the situation in order to care for my needs. Hmm. Hmm. Beautiful. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So if you want an elaboration on that, I'll, I'll send you a, a link to a, you know, a piece of writing I've done about this concept of home um and uh perfect yeah, yeah we'll, we'll include that, that in the, in the in the show notes as well um awesome and then final final question what are you most excited about or looking forward to in 2022 <sighs> traveling <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah. like i've been i've been moving around a fair bit the last year just because i've been in a sort of a limbo state of where I'm living prior, you know, prior to arriving here for at least the medium term on Vancouver Island, um, if not, you know, the where what might be home for the rest of my life. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I want to, you know, I want to visit my friends in the States, I want to, you know, check out some of the cool stuff that's happening in Portugal. Um, I don't know if either or both of those will happen in 2022, but they seem uh, more likely. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the most immediate answer it's kind of kind of boring like you know everybody's just like so so raring to get back out i mean i guess separate from yeah. traveling uh i mean i'm also just looking forward to dancing with people right like mm, um yeah after after covid and and singing with people making music beautiful um yeah amazing well this has been um this has been freaking awesome and i'm excited for a round two at some point as well uh in the meantime, where is the best place for listeners to learn more about Complice and read some of your writing? Um, obviously, Twitter, but where else might you direct people? Well, I mean, I, I think I think my Twitter profile is the best um, the best kind of landing landing page um, um, because it's it's got a link to Complice, it's got a link to my blog, um, and uh, I mean my my Twitter URL is uh, uh, at at Malcolm underscore ocean and Malcolm has two L's in it, which many people don't realize. Um, and uh, M-A-L-C-O-L-M, that is, uh, yeah. Perfect. Okay, well, um, to wrap up, uh, the question that I usually end with is, is borrowed from Rilke and it's what are the questions that you feel like you're living? But um, I'd like to deviate slightly and ask a question <laughs> that I, I pose to David White, um, and and that is, what do you think is the question that we as as humans in the Western world are asking and trying to live our way into, um, or, or perhaps which questions 
sh should we be asking more that we're currently not? The first thing that comes to mind is a, a something I've said before, but it seems like an okay answer to to your question, um, which is how can we organize the world so that I can eat a banana every day in Canada and everybody's okay with how everything's organized. <laughs> Beautiful. We will uh, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.